Welcome, everybody. We're just going to leave a minute or two for people to log in through the telephone and on Zoom, and I'll introduce uh, uh, Mr. Dwaskin very shortly. Oh, they're demanding how come they can't see me. So welcome everybody. Today is uh, Tuesday, February 1st. Have a nice month, everyone. Um, and on Tuesdays, we have Mr. Dwaskin. So Mr. Dwaskin, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Angela. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining in. Yes, today is February the 1st. It's um, the shortest month of the year, so we can get through it faster than any other month in the middle of winter. And hopefully it will be a uh, a good and uh, short month. Um, I have two subjects I wanted to speak about today. As I said uh, last week, uh, every now and then we do a bit of a COVID roundup. And uh, this is a very significant week because the uh, couple of reasons. One is that the 10th billionth vaccine has been administered around the world. So if you count up all the vaccinations done, We've already vaccinated not 10 billion people because there are not 10 billion people in the world. There's only about 7.7 .7 billion, but 10 billion doses has, have been given out. Um, the poorer countries, of course, uh, have had the least amount of vaccination. Um, only 14 out of 100 people uh, are vaccinated in the poor countries. Uh, <clears throat> or 14 shots per 100 people is a better way to put it. Um, the uh, lower middle countries have 92 shots per 100 people. And the upper middle and the wealthy countries are 170 and 177 shots per 100 people. So there's a very big difference um, between the rates of vaccination in places like Africa and uh, the wealthier countries in Europe or, or Japan uh, or Korea, places like that, Canada. Um, you know, we all know, of course, that the cases have exploded with the Omicron uh, variation, but we know also that it seems to be a less severe one. And yet, and yet, uh, if we look at the uh, amount of death, the death toll that this disease has taken, uh, in the U.S. it's now... Uh, over 2,500 people a day. And in Canada, we've reached uh, the highest rates, uh, except for the very beginning of the virus when no one was vaccinated and, and the disease ran through the uh, nursing homes. So uh, it's still taking a toll, even though people are vaccinated. Um, uh, the uh, the uh, count, if, if you're interested in looking at the cases and number of cases, it's really a kind of an irrelevant number because uh, there are so many cases where people uh, have no symptoms and there are so many cases where, where people are testing themselves and not reporting the results that really to look at cases um, and try to make comparisons is kind of a very statistically uh, not valid. Um, we could look at trends, and the trend is 
that in many places the the rates of COVID are going down, uh, especially in uh, in Canada and the United States and some parts of Europe. Um, but still, the numbers are really not so strictly comparable. Um, uh, in the U.S., the numbers are down by 35%, but the deaths are up by 28%. Um, uh, and another uh, statistic which is, is a bit hard to, 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 to look at is that uh, the measurements of, uh, of deaths are not exactly accurate in the sense that uh, different hospitals may count people who died who had COVID, but not who died of COVID. So, um, you know, it's a complicated situation and a very compli complicated disease. Uh, today, it was also announced, uh, you might've heard that uh, children under five years old are now eligible to get the vaccine. And um, uh, in these days, uh, one of the prime uh, modes of um, spread is from uh, children who are going to uh, uh, preschool, uh, kindergarten, who are not vaccinated and where the disease spreads easily. And then it goes from the children into the households and, uh, of the parents and grandparents. So that's one of the ways now that it's spreading. And perhaps by vaccinating the children, perhaps uh, it may slow down the spread. But of course, we all know lots and lots of cases now where people who have been vaccinated got COVID. And uh, we also know that um, the uh, vaccinations don't prevent catching it, but they do prevent serious illness. So it's still a very worthwhile uh, thing to do. And also on the news today, uh, not today, but this week it was reported that the two big companies, Pfizer and Moderna are looking to produce a vaccine specifically against the Omicron virus uh, variety. And uh, that would do a lot to improve the efficacy of the vaccines uh, against COVID. Uh, to give some sort of a uh, bit more statistical um, uh, picture, um, <clears throat> the United States, the death rate is now 0.76 of a person, three quarters of a person, per 100,000 people per day. Uh, and the state of Ohio has the highest death rate of uh, almost 1.3 people per day per 100,000 people are dying there. Um, in the world, uh, we, the, uh, we have an estimated of about 10,000 deaths a day of COVID, which is up 30%. Um, and the highest death rate in the world, the place where the proportion of people dying compared to the population, the highest rate in the world is actually in Eastern Europe, in uh, Croatia and Bosnia. Um, and part of that reason is because uh, the degree of COVID uh, vaccine skepticism is the highest in uh, Eastern Europe. For whatever reason, perhaps distrust of government in general, uh, perhaps other cultural reasons, um, people have not been flocking to get vaccinated, even though the vaccinations are available, uh, you know, to anybody who wants one. Um, officially, so far, there have been somewhere around five and a half million people who have died of COVID, but the, uh, the, the true death rate 
ranges somewhere around 20 million. And the reason for this big gap is that um, not everyone is counted. Um, there's no way to specifically know, but one of the best measures that the, the statisticians are using is they say, well, before COVID started, how many people normally died in a country per year? And then after COVID started, how many people um, died um, and how many people reported to have died of COVID? And the difference between the two numbers uh, represents what's called excess mortality. And so, you know, maybe these people died of other reasons, but it stands to reason that all other things being equal, you know, traffic accidents, cancer rates, uh, heart disease, et cetera, that all these extra deaths were probably due to COVID and not something else, uh, simply because of inaccurate counting and, um, you know, uh, Sometimes there's a political reason to downplay the number of people with uh, COVID. And that there's certainly at the very beginning of the epidemic, nobody really knew what COVID was. And people were just um, very quickly without proper uh, records being kept, especially in places like Brazil, uh, uh, you know, and other, other countries like that. <clears throat> In Canada, we heard, of course, that our prime minister got COVID. So it goes to show that even people who are careful and people who follow the rules and are vaccinated uh, can get it. Our cases are down, thankfully, almost 50% over the last two weeks. But uh, we, uh, our deaths are up and we're having now 166 people a day dying. And months back, it was like around 26 people a day. So our death rate now comes to 0.44 per 100,000 per day. The U.S. is 0.76, but Quebec is at 0.74, which is the highest in Canada. Um, and, you know, I ask myself, why is that? How, how can a country where uh, about 80% of the people are fully vaccinated, 88% um, have one shot at least, 41% of people in Canada had three shots? Um, so what explains this high or higher death rate? And uh, the explanation is that there are still a lot of people who haven't been vaccinated. So if 80% are fully vaccinated, that means 20% are not. And 20% of almost 40 million, uh, you know, is close to 8 million people. And, um, you know, uh, you are 20 times more likely to die of COVID if you're not vaccinated than if you're vaccinated. And so, um, you know, that is a good part of the explanation. Um, now, considering that we've lived with this, this disease now two years, it's coming up. It is actually two years starting, we'll call it January. Yeah, February, two years now. Uh, people are developing what's called COVID fatigue. People have had enough. People want to go back to their normal lives. We saw that, of course, the uh, big demonstration in Ottawa by all the truckers uh, over COVID mandates that they don't want to be vaccinated and to, to cross the border. God only knows why. Um, uh, people uh, wearing masks in schools, especially, has led to all kinds of problems with children, um, you know, not learning well. Imagine if you have to try to see a teacher speak and learn how to speak properly, and you can't see their lips moving, 
um, you know, there are real practical consequences to uh, some of the um, mandates to wear masks. Um, and of course, school closures happening uh, frequently mean that kids just are not having the proper school experience that they are supposed to have. Um, and so people are getting fed up. Uh, that might lead to breaking the rules more often. As we've seen, there's, there's less um, enforcement of the rules that are there. Um, you know, you must have heard, of course, how many rule breakers are on flights uh, going back and forth in the world and how many flights, some flights have had uh, fist fights between the uh, flight attendants and the passengers over wearing masks. People have been arrested, flights have been turned back. It's, it's, it's a whole social, um, it's a whole social phenomenon. And people are asking the question, which is a legitimate one, which is that if vaccinations are not stopping the transmission, and if masks are not stopping the transmission, then why go through all the trouble of, um, of, of doing these procedures? And um, the answer is, of course, that uh, while they don't stop the transmission, they slow it down and they make life uh, um, you know, much, uh, much safer for people, even if they've caught the disease. By now, of course, I'm sure most of you, probably all of you, know people and close people, close relatives who've caught COVID. And hopefully, uh, uh, you know, not 90, 95% plus of people who catch it uh, do not develop serious illness. Um, and so that seems to be the the way of the future that, um, you know, if transmission will happen, uh, the, the trajectory of the disease seems to be so far that uh, new variants which develop um, are weaker than the ones that they came from, the ones before. But this could always change. You could always have a, a random mutation, which is a stronger one. But, uh, you know, the, the, the prediction is in general, that any new variants that come about will be weaker than the ones that they, that they replaced. The uh, Omicron uh, variant now accounts for 99% of all cases of COVID in Canada and the US. So it's really taken over from all the other, uh, from all the other variants. Um, um, let's see if there's anything else now. Um, yeah, that the, the, um, that the rate of vaccination seems to have slowed down or stalled in many countries. Uh, in other words, people who wanted it have already got it. In Canada and US and Israel, uh, there isn't huge increases in numbers of people getting vaccinated. Um, uh, the transmission rate of COVID for people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated at this point is only uh, two, two times. Uh, so if you're unvaccinated, you're two times likelier to get COVID than if you are vaccinated. So that's a relatively small proportion showing how contagious this new variant really is. But of course, in pre preventing severe illness or death, that, that's where the really, uh, that's where it works out quite well. 
in the whole world, 63% um, of people are already partially vaccinated and 53% fully vaccinated and 13% boosted. Um, the, the, the countries with the highest rate of vaccination in the Western world are uh, Portugal and Chile, uh, where 90% are, are uh, vaccinated. In Chile, even 67% have gotten a booster shot. The USA is only 64% vaccinated. And in Israel, which led the world, if you remember, in, in, in vaccinations, uh, Israel is still today only 67% fully vaccinated. In other words, people who wanted it got it, and everyone who didn't want it uh, didn't get it and stayed uh, committed not to get it. And that seems to be the way things are going pretty well in, in many, many different countries. Um, um, uh, as I said, as I mentioned before, Eastern Europe, they're still somewhere in the 20% not vaccinated. And in Africa, and for example, in Haiti, it's like even under 1% uh, which have been vaccinated. Um, the uptake of vaccinations, as we all know, is political in a lot of ways. They've made a political issue about it. And the measure is that in the United States, the most conservative states are the least vaccinated ones. Ohio, uh, sorry, not Ohio, I mean Idaho, Wyoming, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, places like that. And in Canada, West, uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan, our most conservative provinces politically, are the ones which are the, um, the least vaccinated. Uh, it remains to be seen, you know, if uh, Premier Legault's idea of finding people who are not vaccinated will actually come to pass. And uh, even if it does come to pass, whether that will um, encourage people to get uh, vaccinated in the future. But, um, you know, the, 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 the status overall now is better than it was uh, at other points in the pandemic. Uh, but uh, still far from being uh, able to go back to get to normal life. So that's just a kind of a quick sketch, a quick, a few quick figures and that. And um, check my watch, okay. And now uh, I would like to speak about the subject of the day. And I've had tossing around in my mind, um, you know, what would be good subjects to speak about. And um, I... Uh, was looking at the COVID-related news uh, about Prime Minister Johnson in Great Britain, who for a umpteenth time was caught uh, breaking COVID rules and attending parties uh, against the um, regulations in the country at the time. And uh, because of his, his, uh, his uh, we'll say, constant breaking of the rules, there's now demands in Great Britain to uh, get rid of him. Um, depends now how strong he is within his own caucus, within his own party, but there are certainly calls for his resignation simply because, uh, you know, as was the case with Mr. Djokovic in, in Australia, uh, that even an important person who breaks the rules should be punished somehow or other. So uh, given that, uh, I thought, you know, we haven't looked at Great Britain in a long time, it's such a fascinating place. So I thought I would give a 
kind of a thumbnail sketch of uh, Britain as a whole, uh, learn something about the country, bring us up to date um, as to the uh, issues of the day. And uh, that's what I'd like to talk about. So, um, um, uh, to, uh, to, let's just see here, um, to go back, uh, first of all, there, there's a lot of confusion about the name, start with just the name of the country, you know, some people used to call Great Britain England, some people call it the United Kingdom, some people call it Great Britain, um, it's a kind of a hodgepodge of names, and each each of those names is actually valid and, and represents a specific part of the country. Um, the United Kingdom is the official name of the country, uh, which is a union of different, what they call countries. They actually call them countries uh, or nations. Um, and um, Great Britain is the union of, um, uh, Scotland, uh, Wales, and uh, England, and that was called Great Britain, um, which also includes, uh, it also includes Northern Ireland. Uh, and the United Kingdom is the um, country which includes those places, but also includes um, some other uh, dependencies and uh, and, and smaller places that are attached to Great Britain. So that's kind of the difference. And people have been living there, of course, for many, many thousands of years, 30 odd thousand years, uh, uh, at least of, of uh, settlement. But eventually they came to be occupied by Celtic people, the same people who lived in uh, Spain, the same people who lived in France, um, also lived in Great Britain. Um, at one time, while people were still living, you could walk across the English Channel um, from Europe directly into um, uh, Great Britain at a time when the sea level was much lower. And during the Ice Ages, for example, you could do that. So people could easily walk and did walk from Europe into Great Britain uh, at the time. Uh, when the ice melted, of course, the oceans filled up more and the land bridge between uh, England and France was uh, broken. Um, and it was only reestablished uh, when they built the uh, Eurostar rail, uh, you know, within uh, the last 20 odd years. So now there's another land connection between the two places. Um, the Romans invaded Great Britain uh, in 40... 3 AD, and they sort of ruled the country for around 400 odd years. Um, they ruled the country, but they never kind of settled it. In other words, they didn't bring people from Rome uh, to go live in Great Britain. It was really at the far end of the Roman Empire. And, you know, the Roman Empire stretched all the way from, uh, you know, England on the one side, all the way practically to India on the other side. And the far border of the Roman Empire was the border today between England and Scotland. So it really was an outpost of the uh, Roman Empire. Um, and uh, when the Romans 
were defeated in uh, Rome itself, like in the 400s when the Roman Empire collapsed, they didn't have the, the means to maintain their um, uh, rule over Great Britain and they just sort of retreated and um, they didn't really, I would say, you know, they left a legacy of um, uh, physical things, structures, bridges and roads, but in terms of the um, language, in terms of religion, um, they didn't really leave any, I would say, strong cultural influences. Um, we know, you know, from the building of the Stonehenge, which was a pre-Roman structure that people in, in Great Britain had some phenomenal engineering skills. Um, but it's sort of, in you know, some ways, when the Romans left, things kind of went back to the way they were before. Except that um, roughly at the same time, so roughly when the Romans walked out, another peoples came in to uh, sort of replace them. And these were immigrants from Germany, the Angles and the Saxons, and from Denmark. Uh, and what these people did was they conquered England, especially Eastern England and spread westward. And a couple of centuries later, the Norsemen, the Vikings came from Norway and, and entered into Scotland and made their way down a bit into England. And so these groups together um, were the forerunners of the English language and the original Celtic speaking peoples were pushed to the fringes of Great Britain. So in other words, to, uh, to Wales and to the islands uh, off of Scotland. And uh, there they remained until kind of uh, the 20th century. Um, eventually the uh, language spoken by the um, uh, invading populations, the Saxons and the Angles uh, and the Danes became the English language. Uh, but you know, for people who are stu students of that language, um, if he, they, they, you know, uh, Chaucer and other great writers started writing things down uh, a thousand years ago. And if you would hear it or see it or read it, you would have almost no understanding of the language today. It has changed so much uh, over the years that um, Old English is a completely different language from modern English. And uh, even Shakespeare, who for, you know, who wrote in the uh, 1600s, um, many people who study Shakespeare today would look at the language and say, well, I could barely understand it, uh, but that's already considered to be modern English or close to modern English. So you can imagine what English was like back in 800 and 900 and 1000 uh, AD. Um, the next big shock to uh, England and the history was uh, the Norman invasion in 1066. So the Normans were French, uh, uh, French kings. They crossed the English Channel and they conquered uh, pretty well most of England <clears throat> in that year, 1066. And they went ahead and established a whole system of uh, courts, uh, a system of rule, 
where French was the language of um, the aristocracy and uh, sort of what was English was spoken by the uh, farmers and the uh, uh, you know, low, lower class people. And over the centuries, and it did take a few hundred years, this mixture of French and old English became the root of modern English. And so unlike, um, unlike the other languages in the, um, either on, in the uh, Latin family or languages in the Germanic family, uh, which are peculiar, which are peculiar to them, um, and which uh, are sort of uh, derived from a basic root. Uh, the English language is actually a mixture of both the uh, <clears throat> Latin-derived languages, <clears throat> sorry, and the German-derived languages, and that explains why English grammar is so complicated, why English spelling is so complicated. Um, why we have sometimes, sometimes words, we have words uh, for the same thing in, in both roots of languages. And generally speaking, if you're interested in this, the shorter words in English derive from the uh, original Anglo-Saxon roots of the language, and the longer ones, and the ones that have to do with uh, uh, more with rule, with courts, with philosophy, with religion, uh, they derive from the French roots of the language. So uh, to give some great examples, uh, like the word uh, cow, the animal cow is derived, of course, from German, but the word beef, which you get from a cow, which only rich people eat, ate, uh, comes from French, boeuf. And there's so many other examples of that in, um, in, in English. So the very basic words, the parts of the body, uh, things like that are, are um, you know, the, the sun, the moon, uh, the sky. Uh, these are non-French uh, words. But as soon as you get into words like direction and, um, and, and, and religion and uh, philosophy and things like that, uh, then these are all words that came from French. Um, uh, so the uh, invasion of the Normans uh, did not affect Scotland because Scotland stayed independent. And um, of course, uh, Great Britain was a Catholic country before the, uh, before the, um, uh, Normans invaded. Uh, Christianity was brought towards the end of the Roman Empire by um, uh, evangelize uh, by priests who came to you know to convert the convert the people, um, and uh, uh, the um, the Catholic religion was strongly established in Great Britain. Uh, uh, you know, certainly by the middle, in the Middle Ages. Um, there are, you know, remains of ancient churches scattered all over the place in the country. And um, all of this changed when the Protestant Reformation came uh, in the 1500s. So the Protestant Reformation did not start in, in England or in Great Britain, but it spread there and became very entrenched very quickly. Um, and this is one of the key 
explanations of why Great Britain became such a great power, uh, I believe. So, you know, many of you all remember the story of how King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife and marry somebody else. And since divorce was not uh, allowed under the Catholic religion, he said, fine, you know, I'm changing religions to Protestantism. And he did. And he divorced his wife and married a new one. And at that point, um, uh, he created what's called the Church of England, which basically was a Catholic church, but without the Pope. Uh, and without the taxes going to Rome and, um, and without the Latin language as a language of prayer. So it was a kind of a substitution of power more than a substitution of religion, we'll put it something like that. Um, uh, the, uh, the, um, uh, the Protestant religion became kind of the religion of the state. Um, the uh, royal family are to this day called the defenders of the Church of England. And at various periods of history, the Catholic population who were the minority, who refused to convert, were persecuted, chased out, uh, etc. Lots of uh, lots of very good uh, information and novels and history about that uh, time. Uh, Scotland remained uh, Catholic for a longer time than Great, Great Britain did. When they eventually converted to Protestantism, they did it in a really strong way. And uh, some of the most fanatical Protestants were, were found in Scotland, um, uh, you know, in the day. Uh, <clears throat> um, in 1542, not, not a date to remember, but England uh, took over Wales, and um, those two remained united uh, up until this day. Um, there was a revolution in the 1600s when the king was executed. You might remember this by uh, Oliver Cromwell, who was a kind of a, a revolutionary uh, Republican. Uh, but uh, among other things, Cromwell went to Ireland and tried to conquer and did conquer Ireland there and tried to impose Protestantism on the population, which uh, did not succeed, but uh, he did manage to bring uh, thousands of settlers uh, who were Scottish Protestants into Ireland in order to kind of take over the country. And, you know, in, in, terms, of, in terms of today's uh, politics, we would call them settlers, in other words, like the Jewish settlers in the West Bank. These were Scottish settlers in Ireland. And they came to influence Irish history, you know, for the next 400 odd years. Um, but the Republican era of uh, Cromwell didn't last more than 20 years. The king was restored, the kingdom was restored. And um, another important date in English history is 1707 when uh, Scotland and England united as one country. And that became Great Britain. That's when the term Great Britain began to be used, um, you know, to reflect the fact that uh, Britain and Wales and, um, and uh, Ireland and Scotland were all one country at that time. So the, the 1600s and 1700s were a tremendous expansion of Great Britain, sea power, uh, colonies uh, around the world. Um, tremendous exports and imports uh, in trade, 
um, Great Britain took uh, uh, territories, uh, you know, all around the world. Uh, they fought and won wars against Spain and France. And uh, by the early 1800s, the Industrial Revolution started in Great Britain. And this was really the beginning of the huge power and expansion uh, of Great Britain, not just in terms of its naval power, but in terms of its economic power. And the Industrial Revolution started uh, when mechanization was introduced, uh, the harnessing of, uh, started with the harnessing of hydroelectric power to drive um, engines, which made then uh, Britain a textile producer, uh, industrial machine producer, uh, using coal to make steel. And that whole period of the 1800s was Britain's century. So if you ask or look around and you say, well, you know, which country was the most dominant in the, in the uh, I'd say starting from the 1750s uh, up until 1914, it was Great Britain. They were not only the strongest military power, but the strongest economic power in the whole world. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Great Britain defeated Napoleon in the early 1800s to become really the only world power at the time for that whole 100, 100 and 125 odd year period. Um, they ended up taking over uh, practically a quarter of the world. I uh, remember the, the saying, the sun never sets on the British empire. They had territories ranging from uh, Hong Kong and China, all through uh, Malaya, uh, Burma, uh, what's called India today, India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka. Uh, they had influence in the Persian Gulf. Um, they had powers in, in, in Africa, they took over colonies uh, all the way practically from Egypt on the north to South Africa on the bottom, on the south. Um, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and all the islands around the Pacific, islands in the Atlantic. <clears throat> in the New World, uh, Canada and the US were part of the British Empire uh, for a long time, as well as many of the Caribbean islands, Jamaica, etc., etc., etc. And even going into uh, Central America, there was a British Honduras, uh, today known as Belize, British Guiana. And although they didn't own territories in South America, they had such strong economic power that they pretty well dominated the industries in um, Argentina for sure, uh, Chile, uh, Uruguay, um, and uh, they were a world power. They were a world power uh, uh, undisputably in the, in the 1800s, uh, going all the way around to till around 1900. <clears throat> they also ran and owned uh, the Mediterranean. So they had, they had territories in the Atlantic Ocean, uh, some of the islands there uh, in the Pacific Ocean, some of the islands there, and even in the Mediterranean with uh, Malta, Gibraltar and Cyprus, uh, they held um, physical territory pretty well all over the whole wide world. Um, democracy was something that came 
sort of gradually, we'll call it gradually to Great Britain. It wasn't like a kind of a one uh, revolutionary action the way it happened in the United States. But the US, the US Revolution of 1776 um, was the sort of first mark of a defeat for Great Britain um, because the US colonies uh, broke away to become independent. The first independent uh, uh, sort of democracy in the world. And uh, Great Britain learned from that uh, mistake. Uh, they learned that they, they had to um, uh, become democracies themselves, that the king himself who had all the power, King George III, misplayed his hand so badly that uh, the, the demand was, you know, let's, if the Americans are, are sort of introducing some form of self-government, uh, Great Britain had to do the same thing. You know, Great Britain always had the nobility, <clears throat> the landowners, uh, the king's relatives who had the power, but by the 1830s, it was decided to spread power more widely in parliament. So parliament, which was once a kind of advisory body, became a, a, a body with powers starting in, you know, roughly around the 1830s, when uh, the vote was um, expanded not only to uh, people who were landowners, but people who uh, were uh, more broadly representative in the country, obviously not to women, of course, uh, but um, uh, Parliament slowly gained more powers uh, and the royal family became uh, slowly less powerful uh, over the 1800s. And it was, it was a kind of a, we'll call it a step-by-step, -step, gradual type of approach. Um, by 1900 already, uh, Germany and the United States were formidable economic powers, uh, challenging British uh, kind of uh, hegemony, and economically anyway. And uh, Britain started to have other troubles besides uh, the US. Um, in the late 1800s, there was a demand started in India for self-rule. Uh, the Irish people demanded self-rule also, um, and um, the, uh, the uh, things sort of came to a head, all starting in the 20th century. So um, uh, World War I uh, uh, took a tremendous toll on Great Britain. Uh, even though Great Britain won the war, along with its uh, allies, um, the toll it took in terms of the number of people who were casualties, I think two and a half million, I think I was reading, which is a lot of people. I mean, even in Canada, the, the toll that World War I took on Canada was greater than the toll that World War II took on Canada in terms of percentages. Um, uh, in the middle of the war, the Irish uh, people decided to revolt. Uh, 1916, there was an uprising, and uh, Great Britain decided finally uh, at the end of the war to resolve the Irish question by holding a referendum, which was held in 1921. And this referendum uh, kind of, uh, like other referendums, never turned out exactly the way uh, people were expecting. Um, and Great Britain, kind of honored this referendum and kind of didn't. 
So uh, a majority of Irish people voted for independence in the 1921 referendum. And Great Britain, instead of saying, okay, uh, you know, Ireland, you won, and we'll, we'll create a separate country. What they, what they decided to do was to, to, to keep the areas that voted to stay with Great Britain and to give the rest of the country independence. And that's how the so-called province of Northern Ireland was created in 1922. So the six counties that voted to stay with Great Britain became Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland became the independent Republic of Ireland. Well, for, it wasn't a Republic at first, uh, but uh, nine years later, it became a Republic in 1931. So that, that explains how Ireland, the, Ir the island of Ireland became divided in two different countries. Of course, that had its uh, consequences much later on, but uh, for now, that's what happened. Um, because Great Britain won the war, the First World War, we're back, at, we're still at the First World War, uh, territories that were owned by the losers, and the case, in the case of the First World War, the losers were Prussia or Germany, uh, and the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Great Britain took over territories that belonged to the first two places. So from Germany, they took over the German colonies in Africa, which were uh, Cameroon, uh, part of Cameroon anyway, um, Tanganyika and uh, Southwest Africa. Uh, these were huge territories geographically, which Germany had to give up. Um, uh, <clears throat> and from the Ottoman Empire, Great Britain ended up taking over uh, what we would call today Palestine, uh, Jordan, and Iraq. So these are also huge countries. Uh, the Palestine was given as a mandate by the League of Nations to Great Britain to rule for 50 years. Uh, and to create a Jewish national home in Palestine. Um, so by the 1920s then, Great Britain had reached its highest size in terms of um, territories which it either ruled directly or had strong influence over. So we could count in there Canada, Australia, New Zealand still, South Africa still. Um, it was... Uh, uh, it, it was, they, they controlled in the 1920s, one fifth of the territories of the whole world and one quarter of the population of the whole world. So just imagine what a, what a huge uh, undertaking this was. Um, and, uh, you know, although the height of power of Great Britain was before the uh, First World War, uh, certainly the turn of the century around 1900, um, the, 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 the geographic control that Great Britain had reached its peak in the 1920s. Um, but of course, you know, by, by, by the end of the First World War, the United States had already surpassed Great Britain in terms of uh, the size of the economy. And just as the 1800s were the century of Great Britain, the 1900s were the century of the United States. And the 2000s, you know, we're already a fifth of the way through and we still have 80 years to go. So 
We're not going to make a decision on that yet, but you know, some people say that it's going to be China's century. Um, and certainly it looks like uh, there is uh, you know, a, a gradual decrease of American uh, power and a, an increase of Chinese power. So who knows by 2050, you know, we might decide that that is the case. Um, but in any case, uh, going, back to, uh, going back to Great Britain, um, the, the, the depression hurt Great Britain quite a lot. Uh, companies closed, companies went bankrupt. There were many strikes in the country. Uh, the growth of the Labour Party to represent the working class was uh, strong at the time. And um, uh, Great Britain sort of didn't dig itself out of the depression until the Second World War took place. Um, you might remember they had a Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, who didn't really want to go to war with Hitler. Um, and uh, who believed all of uh, Hitler's nonsense that he would not uh, start a war. Um, when, of course, Hitler did start a war, Chamberlain was out and Churchill was in. And uh, Churchill proved to be uh, one of the strongest prime ministers that Great Britain had. And he really, he really motivated the country to stay in the war and not to, not to kind of quit. And eventually, uh, you know, we all know that Great Britain, along with its allies, the United States and the Soviet Union, uh, defeated the Germans and defeated the Japanese. And uh, Great Britain at the end of the Second World War was really a devastated country. Although it hadn't suffered um, too much physical damage, there was lots of rocket attacks on Great Britain and the Nazis did occupy the Channel Islands, which are part of the British domain. But all in all, Great Britain escaped from the Second World War in a better shape than the rest of Europe, but still severely weakened, especially economically weakened. Um, when the United Nations was set up and after the Second World War, Great Britain was given a permanent seat on the Security Council to reflect its uh, still great influence. Great Britain uh, was a nuclear power, so one of the few countries uh, that had nuclear weapons. Um, <clears throat> but uh, Great Britain was kind of, I would say, exhausted, uh, moral, mentally exhausted, financially exhausted. And uh, they decided at that point in the end of the 1940s to um, to decolonize, to give up some of their colonies, which they were just too, um, too unable to maintain uh, to, to, you know, they didn't want the military um, uh, to go in and, and sort of put down uprisings. They didn't want to invest financially in those places. Uh, they had to rebuild their own country from the Second World War. And so therefore countries like India, Pakistan, uh, Sri Lanka, uh, Burma, uh, uh, and Palestine uh, were, were given their independence. You know, of course, in the case of Palestine, the British just left in 1948 and uh, the Arabs and Israelis fought a war when Israel 
became a, you know, established as a country in 1948. In fact, Great Britain could have ruled over Palestine for until 1970. So they were given a 50 year mandate in 1920. So they could have actually maintained their rule if they wanted to up until 1970, but their withdrawal was part of that general withdrawal from that part of the world. Uh, in the 1960s, the African uh, uh, colonies were given their independence, you know, Ghana, Nigeria, and all the other ones. Um, the, uh, the, uh, one of what I would call a big surprise is that after um, Churchill had led the country to victory, when he stood for re-election in 1950, he was defeated uh, by the Labour Party. Uh, Churchill was from the Conservative Party. And you'd think that the country was ungrateful, you know, uh, but uh, it goes to show how the British people have such a strong independent streak and also how they could change their minds so quickly uh, from kind of one, one set of ideas to another. And in those early 1950s, as part of the way of reestablishing Great Britain and rebuilding it, there was a lot of nationalization of, uh, of industries, uh, you know, the railways, the electricity companies, the coal companies, the airlines. Uh, these, these were all government owned in an attempt to kind of um, rebuild on the one hand and to create employment on the other hand. Uh, you know, from a devastated country. Um, <clears throat> skip uh, over into the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher uh, took over the country from uh, uh, the Conservative Party and she denationalized all these industries. She said, you know, Great Britain can make it on its own. People have to stand up on their own two feet. She also defeated Argentina in the war in the Falklands. And um, um, she was kind of the most dynamic leader that uh, Britain had since, uh, you know, since the, I would say since Churchill. Um, uh, and she reoriented the country really completely to uh, an individual perspective than from a kind of a collective perspective. Um, in the 1990s, there was the uh, kind of um, uh, also, of course, uh, one of the other big economic developments under the Thatcher period was the, the development of the North Sea uh, gas and oil resources, which added a lot to the British Treasury. Um, there was uh, uh, the the. Um, We'll go back a little bit and say that the sort of independence movements of former British colonies in the 1960s and 1970s also had an echo in Scotland of people who wanted uh, independence there. And the Scottish national movement, uh, uh, nationalistic movement grew uh, strongly in the 1970s and the 1980s. And we could think of a parallel with Quebec at the time in the 1970s and the the sort of Scottish leaders of independence and the Quebec leaders of independence, they had lots of good contacts and ties with each other in those days. And um, it was decided that um, a whole new approach was needed to deal with these kind of 
new nationalistic or national uh, ideas. And it was decided at the, you know, for the very first time uh, since in the Middle Ages to um, give parliaments to devolve power in Great Britain from the central government, which had all the power, to uh, regional governments or provincial governments uh, or national governments um, uh, in Scotland, in Wales, and in Northern Ireland, that, that these countries should have their power too. Now, it's also interesting that, you know, we don't call, and they don't call those places provinces. They actually call them countries. And, um, uh, you know, if you look at the Olympics and other international sporting events, um, places like Wales and, Nor and Scotland have, their, have, have had their own teams um, participate in uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, sporting events. And Great Britain doesn't seem to regard that as kind of um, anti-patriotic. They, they see Scotland and Wales as being kind of almost separate countries united together uh, with England into one, uh, one kingdom. And Scotland decided that they wanted to go out on their own and become an independent country altogether. And uh, Tony Blair, who was the Labour uh, Prime Minister for a long time, decided that one way to sort of lower the temperature of nationalism would be to give, to open up special parliaments in the countries that formed Great Britain in order to decentralize the country because Great Britain was a very centralized country in London. There were no regional assemblies. There were no provinces to speak of in that way. Um, and all power came from London. And it was resented by people who were not only in Scotland and in Wales and in Northern Ireland, but also even in, in Northern England, uh, which um, uh, started to become poorer and poorer when uh, the deindustrialization took place. So just like everywhere else in the world where heavy industries, you know, steel making uh, and the rust belt happened in, uh, in North America. So the same thing happened in Great Britain, the coal mines closed, the steel industry uh, shut down and many cities in the mid Midlands and the mid part of England became poorer and um, the, the new fields of banking and high tech, uh, universities and, and pharmaceuticals, uh, insurance, um, uh, international trade, all of these things were centered in London and the old industries uh, of, uh, you know, of course, cotton making, furniture making, um, uh, clothes making, uh, you, you know, like steel and railways, all of these industries kind of declined. Um, <clears throat> uh, but the odd part of it is in devolving these parliaments, England, which is the, the main element of the country, they never got their own parliament. And it would have been, in my opinion, a good idea so that all the, the four main components of Great Britain would each have a regional parliament and then a national capital, but uh, England never got a, uh, its own parliament. So uh, the, the parliament in London, which is the parliament of Great Britain uh, with 650 members, 
most of whom are from England, they uh, still ran all the, uh, the, the, the main uh, levers of power in England itself. And the parliaments in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland were given very limited powers and different powers, by the way, not the same powers, but different ones. So Scotland has more powers than, let's say, uh, you know, the, the assembly in, in, in Wales. And Northern Ireland had its own parliament starting in 1921 when it separated from Ireland. But that parliament was shut down frequently because of the troubles, because of the violence between Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland. And um, that parliament was repeatedly shut down. Um, um, let me just see now. Yeah, let's go a little further here. We're getting up to today's time, so don't worry. Uh, Great Britain joined the European Union uh, as a kind of an economic move. They kept the, the pound sterling and not the euro currency. Um, and, uh, you know, after 20 odd years in this structure, they decided to leave the European Union. Uh, and and, and the, the, the campaign to leave the European Union was um, one where the Prime Minister Cameron at the time, he had the support of all the political parties in Great Britain, the major political parties, the Conservative Party, the Liberal Democratic Party, and the Scottish National Party. He had their support to stay in, in the European Union. But the people uh, decided that they wanted to leave, not for economic reasons, but for kind of, I would call them almost Trumpian reasons. They didn't want all people coming to move into the country, which, they, which uh, all the Europeans had free movement under the uh, European Union rules. And, and, and people felt that, that Great Britain was being swamped by foreigners, people coming in from Eastern Europe, particularly uh, competing for jobs, competing for low level jobs, uh, different languages being heard on the streets. And there were some elements of, of, of British people who said, no, we don't want this anymore. We want control over our own borders. We want to admit who we wanted to admit. And the referendum uh, was lost, uh, surprisingly in a way. Um, the referendum ended up 52% uh, to leave and 48% to stay. At that point, David Cameron resigned the job. And uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister who current prime minister took over uh, the Conservative Party. And he was one of the backers of Brexit. In other words, Britain exiting the European Union. So there was a division in the Conservative Party about this. Um, the vote was one where the London and Scotland and Northern Ireland voted to, to remain in Europe and the rest of Great Britain voted to leave. And the poorest parts of the country were the strongest uh, voters to leave Europe, Europe. And it seems odd because Europe was a great economic advantage to Great Britain. And the fact is that years now uh, since Brexit, Great Britain's economy has gone down by about 4%. Thousands of jobs in, in banking, in insurance, in trade, uh, left uh, left uh, Great Britain. Uh, many hundreds of thousands of people who were sort of um, uh, had residency in Great Britain, but they were not citizens. Uh, they left too. 
And that actually left Great Britain with a shortage of workers, which they're now trying to figure out how to fill up. Fill up. So workers in agriculture, workers in the nursing trades, in the old age homes, uh, are they're desperately short. Great Britain just allowed uh, 50,000 truck drivers to come in from Eastern Europe because they didn't have enough truck drivers to fill up the shelves. Um, the trade barriers that were set up between Europe and Great Britain have been a real hindrance. And the whole issue of Ireland became important because um, it was decided that uh, Northern Ireland and the country Ireland would never have a border between them. And therefore, how do you do that when you have to have customs inspections on goods coming from Europe into Great Britain and vice versa? And yet Ireland is, Northern Ireland is part of Great Britain. So, excuse me, <coughs> excuse me, sorry, sorry. Um, so that, that became and it continues to be a real dilemma for the country. Um, how do you square a circle between having Northern Ireland part of Great Britain and Northern Ireland part of the European Customs Union uh, and Great Britain out of it. So, you know, they're still working on that particular issue. There was a referendum in Scotland in 2014, 55% voted no, that they wanted to stay in Great Britain. Um, and uh, the Scottish National Party uh, <clears throat> remained powerful from then up until now. Although they're, they, because they, they took over Scotland uh, sort of provincially uh, and Scotland suffered, uh, their uh, standing in Scotland has also gone down recently. <clears throat> um, I have to just mention Jeremy Corbyn, who was uh, selected leader of the Labour Party, who turned out to be such a disaster for that party and who gave, uh, you know, his poor leadership is what led Boris Johnson to have a, a tremendous victory. And <clears throat> I'll just close off by saying that the victory that Boris Johnson won in the last elections in Great Britain was so big that he succeeded in winning seats in parts of England where the Labour Party had never lost a seat, We're going back into the 1930s even. Um, <clears throat> Boris Johnson himself was mayor of London for a time. Uh, he was always seen as being a kind of a controversial figure, uh, you know, uh, personality. He had, uh, you know, many different uh, children by many different women. Um, you know, he was compared in some ways to Donald Trump, but, but he's a much more educated uh, person than he is. But in the same way of breaking rules as Donald Trump, he had that sort of a, uh, anti-social anti and uh, uh, kind of rebellious nature. And uh, that seems to be what brought him into trouble now with the, um, you know, with the COVID rules. Uh, Great Britain was so strongly affected by COVID. They had many, many deaths. Although they were one of the countries that started vaccines early, um, uh, Great Britain still suffered tremendously uh, from COVID uh, and, um, and still does. Um, the, uh, one of the surprising facts that I read was that um, although Britain is still very strong in high tech and aerospace and pharmaceuticals and cars and gas and things that 
that agriculture in Great Britain, you don't think of it as an agricultural country, but they supply 60% of all the food in the country. Uh, you know, tourism, transportation are also important. Uh, Great Britain has a population today of about uh, 67 million and a, and a per capita income of around $48,000 US, which is still high. So they're either the fifth or 10th uh, largest economy in the world, depending on how you measure it. Um, and, um, and it's also become a very multicultural uh, country since uh, immigration was encouraged from uh, all around the world, especially former British colonies in the Caribbean and in Indo-Pakistan. And, um, uh, you know, the, the composition of the country uh, in London is, you know, a third non-white today, um, but, uh, uh, and, and many Muslim immigrants from Pakistan ended up in the, in the sort of poor Northern uh, English cities. Um, so the face of Great Britain has changed a lot over a hundred years. And um, it's, uh, uh, you know, a country which is actually still trying to find its way after Brexit and hasn't quite decided which direction it's going. So that's the end of that. Uh, sorry, I went over a bit of time. Um, any questions, comments? Uh, now's your time to uh, think about it and ask me. Uh, anything you'd like about this subject or some other subjects, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, um, uh, I'm all yours. So we have a few questions, Mr. Doskin. Yeah. Uh, the first question is by Anonymous, and the question is, do we have a percentage of people who post-COVID have become long haulers? Uh, Post-COVID become long haulers? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. Um, it's a very, very small percentage, uh, but it's hard to get a real number since, um, uh, you know, the definition of a long hauler is, is, is kind of up in the air. Uh, some people have uh, symptoms which are uh, long lasting and serious, and other people may have some very minor symptoms after they've recovered uh, which uh, are there, but which are not um, serious ones. You know, some of the more serious, some of the more serious ones are loss of taste and smell, which can last for months after that. But I was just reading, and you might have read the same thing that, um, and actually, I think it was Israeli researchers who found, who looked at um, uh, respiration and composition of lungs, and found that. Um, there is uh, long-term damage in the way that the lungs process the blood supply in people who have had COVID. So um, uh, it, it is definitely, could, could definitely be serious. Uh, the percentage of people who are long haulers is not huge, but the people who are, are severely affected. And the other point is that um, although COVID really affects uh, people, the older that they are, uh, many people who are long haulers are people who are younger people and um, uh, in their 30s and 40s and 50s. And, uh, you know, at this point, um, 
we don't know enough about it to find out whether this is permanent or not. So uh, uh, it, is the, it is though a serious issue, but not one which is considering the, the, the millions and millions of people who've already caught COVID, uh, you know, the number of people who are long haulers are not, is not that great. So shall I oh. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry about that. Go ahead, Mr. Dwaskin. No, 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 you go ahead. So Chantal is asking, please talk about Russia, uh, the Russia and Ukraine crisis. I did that last week. Chantal, did you, uh, did you miss me last week? I did speak about that. Um, I gave a whole talk about Ukraine in particular. Um, and um, it's, uh, um, <clears throat> it's, uh, you know, one which is uh, ongoing and um, uh, the, um, the pattern of behavior of Russia has been uh, aggressive to uh, its neighbors and not only to the Ukraine, but they've had wars in, in Georgia. Uh, they've had wars in Ukraine. They've taken over territory from both places. Um, the, there's risks to Russia for doing this kind of an exercise. And it may well be that the risks are greater than the rewards. Um, normally, uh, when you have an authoritarian government, they sometimes embark on foreign adventures in order to sort of uh, uh, steady or increase their popularity. Uh, at this point, Putin's popularity is, is high, but not the highest it's ever been, because the, uh, the economy of Russia um, has been sort of declining recently. Um, COVID has certainly taken its toll in Russia as well. Um, Russia is a country where the, um, the economy really depends a lot on uh, raw materials being exported like uh, metals, uh, gas and oil. And uh, up until very recently, the oil and gas prices were low. And um, so uh, there was a declining standard of living in the country. Um, but his popularity was really in, in essence unchallenged. Uh, there is no strong opposition le leader. Uh, the sort of partial democracy that Russia has never sent up uh, a challenge to Putin. So from a political point of view, he's not really obliged to uh, sort of save his skin by embarking on a foreign adventure. Um, at the, but, you know, at the same time, uh, he succeeded in taking over the Crimean Peninsula without any opposition, which was a popular move in Russia. Um, and he succeeded in sponsoring uh, uh, pro-Russian uh, militias to take over small territories in the Ukraine, which are Russian speaking. And there's still plenty other territories in the Ukraine, which are Russian speaking. And um, he just may want to project power in Europe by, by making trouble in Ukraine. And of course, the Ukraine is not militarily uh, strong enough to defeat him. Um, he's also pretty well taken over Belarus after the, the country to the north of Ukraine, where 
Mr. Lukashenko, as prime minister, president, lost an election, but stayed in power. And it's only because of Russia's backing that um, he's still able to maintain power. Russia sent in a lot of troops recently into Belarus, so he can use Belarus as a kind of a staging point to invade the Ukraine from the north because the Ukrainian military forces are concentrated on the eastern border where it borders with Russia. And uh, if he sort of sneaks around and goes from the north, he could, he, he could uh, march into Kiev, the capital, uh, probably without a hell of a lot of opposition. But being able to do something is not the same thing as doing it. And um, his objective is supposedly was to prevent the Ukraine from ever joining NATO or from joining the Western powers. But by acting so aggressively, he's making all the countries on the border of Russia, like the Baltic countries and Poland, to be even more strongly pro-Western. And um, uh, he's also forced the West to kind of confront him. So he's forced NATO to, um, to beef up its military. He's forced the United States and Mr. Biden to, uh, to uh, agree to send troops to Poland. Uh, and, um, you, know, if, if, you know, if Russia wants a war against Europe, uh, you know, this is not, it, it will happen this way. I don't think the European uh, countries would actually send troops to confront Russia, but it certainly would uh, make a line a uh, strong line between Russia and the rest of Western Europe. And, uh, it, you know, it's not something that would be to the advantage of Russia. Let's, let's put it like that. Uh, for Chantal also, if you want to listen to previous lectures of uh, Mr. Dwoskin or anyone else, we have a SoundCloud page that you could uh, go into and you could actually listen to past lectures. If you're having trouble, just call the reference desk and they will help you out with that. I, I didn't even know that. But Chantal, yeah. last, last week I spoke for an hour about the Ukraine. So um, if you can, you could listen to that and you might get some more, some more insight into this whole uh, problem. So there's another question by Chantal and she says, Amnesty International labeled Israel an apartheid. Sounds like anti-Semitism. So this is also news of the day and could have been a separate subject. It might well be. Um, it wasn't Amnesty International. It was the United Nations, um, uh, a permanent United States Nations Commission on um, Apartheid, uh, no, a permanent United States Commission on um, Israel's action in the Palestinian territory. So. Israel has the unique ability to uh, attract attention from the United Nations. There is a permanent commission in the United Nations which is meant to uh, report on Israeli so-called uh, uh, crimes in, um, in Palestine. And Israel is unique in that way to have a, a single, uh, the undivided attention of the United Nations on its behavior. There isn't any other United Nations Commission which is empowered to make judgments on any other country's behavior. Uh, the Human Rights Commission, this is part of the United Nations Human Rights Commission, by the way. 
So it's, it's a subcategory of the United States Human Rights Commission. And members on this commission include uh, Cuba, Syria, Libya, uh, I think Angola, and, and lots of other countries who are paragons of human rights behavior. Um, it, there's no question that um, th 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 this is uh, a kind of a permanent anti-Israeli political uh, move, uh, despite individual actions that Israel may uh, have uh, done uh, against uh, different Palestinian populations in the country. What this commission didn't, doesn't understand or doesn't want to understand, in, and, and, and I, I read the speech uh, that Mr. Lapid, the foreign minister, gave today, and, and he didn't emphasize strongly enough that in 1947, the United Nations itself decided to partition Palestine to create a Jewish state in Palestine. So by creating a Jewish state in Palestine, what does that mean? It means that the Jewish people are supposed to be the majority in that state. They're supposed to, um, they're supposed to rule that state uh, and they're supposed to reflect Jewish history, Jewish culture, uh, Jewish values in the creation of that state. Now, you know, it, it's the United Nations that said that Israel is supposed to be a Jewish state. It's not anyone else who did that. So in being a Jewish state, naturally, it means that the Jewish people have to be a majority in that state. And obviously the Palestinians are a minority in that state. Now, had the Palestinians accepted this United Nations partition, they would have had their own state in the rest of Palestine. So there could have been a Palestinian state and the Jewish state all created in what was the mandated territory of Palestine that I referred to uh, that Great Britain was given in 1920. But the Palestinian themselves and the Arab neighbors refused to accept this division. So they're the ones who declared war on Israel. They're the ones who lost the war in 1948. They're the ones who lost territories uh, that would have been part of the Palestinian state. They were the ones who um, um, uh, ended up with the refugee problem of Palestinians uh, leaving the territories that became the Jewish state. Uh, some of them were kicked out. Uh, some of them fled on their own. Uh, but the fact is that um, uh, Israel was left with uh, a population which was 90% Jewish and 10% Arab. And therefore, uh, you know, there were different, um, different uh, paths taken uh, within Israel um, over this issue. And uh, Israel never uh, became an apartheid state in the sense of creating uh, different legal definitions of two different populations, of giving different rights to two different populations. Um, uh, so uh, if you compare the South African apartheid rule and system and the Israeli uh, system, uh, there is no comparison whatsoever. It's very true that the Palestinians in Israel became second-class citizens, uh, but uh, this wasn't uh, 
um, uh, sort of legislated in any way. They always were citizens and could always vote. But um, considering the fact that, uh, you know, what history did, um, uh, and also considering the fact that Jews living in Arab countries were kicked out uh, at the same time, uh, for sure, it was the fact then, and it's a fact today, that, uh, that Arab, citizen, Arab citizens of Israel, uh, many of whom are called themselves Palestinians, uh, don't have the same social and economic uh, status as the Jewish population has. So, uh, you know, that's the situation. And, and uh, you know, the 1967 war, which again was not caused by Israel, uh, led to the Israeli uh, takeover of the West Bank uh, of the uh, Jordanian state and the Gaza Strip. And therefore they inherited more millions of Palestinian population. And uh, the, um, the relationship between uh, Israel and those people is, one, is an ongoing one. And which also uh, is one which um, has, uh, has uh, explained why Israel is called an apartheid state in the sense that um, Israeli citizens went to live in those Palestinian territories in the West Bank, and their rights are not the same as the rights of the Palestinian uh, neighbors who live with them. Uh, but of course, one group of people are citizens and one people are not citizens. So, uh, you know, this is a whole subject of a whole separate talk, which I may well give uh, in the near future. But um, the premise on which this apartheid declaration is made is wrong. And so, therefore, the whole declaration is wrong. I don't see any more questions, Mr. Dwaskin. Do you want to wait another minute? Up to you. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm free to do that. Okay, um, well, we'll just wait. I'm, uh, you... um, but, you know, I'm glad that Chantal asked that question because, uh, you know, uh, I, I would, you know, uh, uh, speak about that in the future. It's always, you, you know, the subject of Israel is always of such great interest. And um, it's, it's a country which is so wildly interesting and composed of so many different pieces that um, it's always a great one to, uh, to examine. For those of you who are interested in the, in the uh, situation of the Arab Palestinians in Israel, there's a new series on TV called MUNA. Uh, it's on Izzy TV. If you subscribe to this Izzy channel, they bring all kinds of Israeli uh, movies and TV shows uh, with subtitles. And uh, this new series called MUNA is about uh, an Arab Israeli woman who is a, uh, living in Tel Aviv with a Jewish boyfriend and all the, um, you know, all the things that surround that. So it's, it's well done. <clears throat> so there are no more questions, Mr. Dwaskin. Uh, do you have any last words for your lecture? Uh, yeah, just to, you know, to reinforce, you know, the, 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 the this, uh, going back to England again, the, you know, relatively small country that it is, has had such a huge influence in the world 
um, in terms of developing that language, which is now the first or second language of so many uh, people in the world, uh, created a great uh, lit literary um, you know, history with Shakespeare and all the other poets and everything like that. Um, you know, invented so many different things in, in terms of uh, science that we now use today and is spread all around the world. And, um, you know, for such a small place has had such a huge influence uh, and still does really uh, all around the world. Uh, the universities that are there in England, in London are still attract students from all around the world. And even though Great Britain is now a much second power, uh, and even though, of course, this is, like I said, we're gonna be the century of Asia with uh, Japan and Korea and China uh, becoming foremost uh, economic powers in the world, um, Great Britain hasn't quite sunk back into the, uh, in, you know, into the background. There's still, um, there's still quite a, quite a uh, influence uh, in, um, in world uh, events, you know, I didn't talk about sport and soccer and how, you know, English soccer, the game invented in England became uh, the world's favorite pastime. So uh, England has a lot to, Great Britain has a lot to be, uh, to be proud of. And um, that's it. So I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening. And um, we'll see you all next week with a new and interesting subject. So thanks again. And thank Angela for hosting. And please come back and listen uh, next Tuesday. Thank you, Mr. Dwaskin, and thank you to everyone listening in over the telephone and on Zoom. We shall see you next week. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.